verses 3 through 5. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, we do pray now that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word, that the spirit of Christ who dwells in us would convict us, that he would give us understanding and help us to apply it to our lives. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Last week as we began looking at Romans chapter 1, we saw that the Bible, the Word of God, through the Apostle Paul here, uh, calls every man to be subject to his governing civil authority. And of course, that includes us as Christians. And you can see there in verse 1 the reason that Paul gave for that. It is because God has ordained the civil authorities that be. He's not only ordained civil government itself, the institution, but also he has put into place those who serve in that capacity. Remember in Genesis 9-6, after the fall and after the flood, God laid down this principle in Genesis 9-6. He says, whoever sheds man's blood... By man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God, he created him. And so an attack upon another person in that way is indeed an attack upon the very image of God himself, God himself. And so we saw that all authority, all legitimate authority is delegated authority on the part of God. He's sovereign over all. And we also noted that what the Apostle Paul is doing here is giving this general principle to Christians because historically there was a question, now how is this sect of Israel, you know, the early Christians came out of Jerusalem and they were connected with the Jewish people, so how would they respond to civil government? Would they have this rebellious attitude as did many of the Jews before them? Well, the Apostle Paul puts that to bed quickly here in his writing. We are to be subject to the civil authorities. Now, that doesn't mean that every civil authority behaves in a way that is pleasing to God. In fact, we noted that there may be a time in the life of the church where Christians are forced to decide, will I obey the civil magistrate or will I obey God? 
Will I sin against God? Will I deny the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will I follow Christ and obey God and therefore disobey the civil magistrate? And that has happened even in the early church. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, the apostles were forbidden to preach in the name of Christ. And they said, well, we must obey God rather than man. If you go back and look in Israel's history, you will find this was the case at times. In Exodus 1.17, the Hebrew midwives were commended by God because they did not kill the firstborn males as was required by the Pharaoh at that time in Egypt. Also, you look a little later in Scripture in 1 Kings 18, Obadiah hid the prophets of God from Jezebel who sought to kill them. Later in Daniel chapter 3, there is Shadrach, Mesh- Shadrach, Meshach, I can't remember it, and Abednego, and Daniel's friends, and they refused to commit idolatry and bow to the image or the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had made. And even in Revelation 13, 15, there are the saints who refuse to worship the image which represents the civil government at that time. And so we began last time by noting that this passage will keep Christians in check. Christians who despise their local government or perhaps are just leery of obeying civil government. But also, I think as we'll see, this passage also puts or should put into check civil governments because it spells out the purpose of civil government. Again, we noted that Paul gives several reasons. We looked at the first reason for our subjection to the civil authorities last time, and so today we're going to look at two more. And as Paul explains these reasons, at the same time, He discloses the purpose of civil government and in so doing implies their limitation. And so we're going to look at the next two reasons for our subjection to civil government, but also note as well the purpose of government and its limitation. And so then what is the second reason here as to why we are told that we should submit to the ruler's authority. The second reason listed here is because if we do not, we will be judged by them. We will be judged by them. If you look there in verse 3, he says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will receive praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. And he goes on. And so again, last time we were told that if we disobey the authorities that are in existence, we disobey God. We disobey the ordinance of God, and we put ourselves in danger of being judged by God himself. And that's there at the end of verse 2. He will, God, will bring judgment upon them. They will bring God's judgment upon themselves, whether it's God's chastisement or judgment in space and time or future judgment at the day of judgment or even, as we're seeing now, judgment through the civil magistrate, the government. 
And so we looked at that. And so the second reason is that we are to do what is good, because if we do not, we will be judged by the civil authorities, by a good civil authority, if their laws are legitimate, and all of those things fall into place. And so, Paul says here, if you do evil, you will be judged. Now, if you notice, he talks about, uh, in verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good, but to evil. That is one of the functions. It is to bring fear upon those who do evil in society. And he says, if we do good, we will have praise from the same. We will be commended by them. And then in verse 4, he says, for he, he personifies the authority, the civil government, for he is God's minister to you for good. He is God's deacon, his servant, his minister. That doesn't mean he serves you the sacraments or preaches the word or exercises or exercises church authority. It means that he serves in the place of God in the land. Verse 4, to you for good. And so Paul is acknowledging here that God has put civil government into place in order to protect the church. And the church's function is to do good in this sense, to be law-abiding citizens and to do good in the sight of God. But if you do evil, he says, be afraid. Have that phobos, that fear. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And so the civil authority, who is God's servant in the land, is to bring uh, God's wrath in the land to administer justice to avenge, he says, and execute wrath on him who practices evil. And the sword is symbolic for the death penalty here. It is that means by which uh, the Roman government at that time would wage war, of course, but also one way they would execute men. And so they enforce the law. This is why they have the law, is to enforce it. And Paul is simply noting that here. And so there is to be a fear in that sense of the civil authorities. Because if you disobey, there's going to be punishment. We talk about crime and punishment. And so we are to have a healthy fear of them. Now, as I think about this and what Paul says here, I thought as well, well, do people fear civil government today? Perhaps people do, but not for this reason. For other reasons, maybe they fear civil government for whatever reason, but not necessarily because they are going to enforce legitimate authority and legitimate law. In fact, when we look out today, I, I question, at least I do, I question who fears who. And you look at those who enforce the law, the police, uh, do men uh, fear the police or do police fear society? 
And I guess it depends on where you live, and that's a whole other topic, but it is the case today. Some policemen are fearful of using deadly force, even though they may have a legitimate reason to do so in the field. Policemen are spoken to today in a way that is terribly disrespectful and years ago uh, would have gotten them in deep trouble with the law. People attack policemen today physically and harm them because they are emboldened. And why are they emboldened? It's because the civil magistrates there do not do what they are called to do, to enforce the law, to bear the sword and to use it in a way that is right and just. In fact, if we were as a society to return to capital punishment and biblical restitution, I think, I think we would see a decline in crime in our land. Have you ever wondered why in the old movies, and I guess it's typically the West, it's not always Westerns, but why there is always like that prison cell in the, the small town there and and uh, it wasn't a huge prison. Well, there, maybe it was because there weren't a lot of people. But even historically, if you go back, you will find that prisons were usually cells, very small. It was a holding cell. Why? Because we say in our land that men have the right to a speedy trial. And when you look at our whole um, penal uh, uh, system, it is unbiblical. And it's, it's built upon a faulty understanding of man's condition. That basically man is good and uh, he's the product of his environment. And if we just reform him and put him in the correct environment and give him the missing pieces, he will be reformed and changed forever. And that's not the case. We know what the Bible says about the depravity of man. His bent is towards evil. Unless he's born again and is changed. Now that doesn't mean every man is evil as he could be. We know that's not the case, but the point is that um, if we were to return to a, a government that would exercise the sword in this way and uh, bring capital punishment upon those who deserved it, and for those who deserve it to bring biblical restitution, I think crime would be decreased. And when I say biblical restitution, Ephesians 4, which harkens back to the Pentateuch, and it says, um, if he steals, if anyone steals, let him steal no longer, but to pay it back. And under the Old Testament law, it was to be paid back with interest. And so, that would be wonderful, uh, but not the, the end game uh, if we return to that in our land today. And so, the first reason, as we've seen, to be su subject uh, to the civil authorities, because they're all established by God, ordained by Him. And second, as we see in verse 3, uh, it is because if we do not subject ourselves to them, we will be in trouble with the law, theoretically, under a good civil government. So we would be sub subject not only to God's judgment, but the judgment of the magistrate. Well, there's also a third reason in this passage as we read on as to why we are to be subject to the civil magistrate. And Paul spells that out for us in verses 4 and following. He says in verse 4, again, he's God's minister to you to do good. 
But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Verse 5, therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, God's wrath and the wrath of the magistrate, but also for conscience sake. And so here, uh, it would seem as an afterthought, perhaps, uh, we have this third reason, for conscience sake. That is the third reason. So what does Paul mean when he says for conscience sake? What does the Bible mean when it speaks of our conscience? Uh, All men have a conscience. It's part of being human. It's integral to being a human being. We're made in God's image. We're made to receive God's revelation through his creation. And we know he is there. Romans 1 has already talked about this. Romans 2 talks about the conscience. Paul brings it up again here. And so here as we see the conscience, that internal mechanism, part of our being that God has given to us, urges us to do what is right. It restrains men from doing wrong. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 12, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, the conscience passes judgment on man's actions and decisions. The conscience as well condemns bad behavior. Uh, You might think of a a child with a tender conscience who steals the cookies from the cookie jar, gets it without permission, and then cries a little later because he or she knew that that was wrong and mom and dad told him or her not to do it. Or maybe you know of an older, godlier Christian, someone who's been a Christian for a long time, and, and their conscience is so tender when they begin talking about sin and things like that, they, they begin to get very um, sad and perhaps shed a tear. The conscience, though, can be fallible. It's not perfect. Uh, it can be weak, 1 Corinthians 8, 7 tells us. It can be clear Elsewhere, the apostle tells us to strive to have a good conscience, 1 Timothy 1.5, 1 Timothy 3.9. And as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.2, the conscience can be seared as with a hot iron. Have you ever burned yourself, your skin? Well, that will leave a scar usually, and that scar will not be as sensitive as the other areas of your body. And so Paul uses that imagery to talk about the conscience, which can be seared through repetitive practicing of ungodliness and suppressing God's truth, denying his existence and acting as if he is not there. And so it can be seared. But for the Christian, you know, the Bible says, if any man is in Christ, behold, he is what? A new creature. All things have been made new. His conscience has been made new. And in Hebrews 10, verses 1 and 2, it speaks about the conscience. You know, the writer there is talking about, well, he's talking to the first century believing Jewish people who were tempted to go back and because of peer pressure from their unbelieving Jewish family and so forth, they they were tempted to go back and begin again offering the bloody sacrifices. And the writer, he's like, look. He said, that was the appetizer, the main dish has come, Christ has come. And so we don't 
do those things anymore. They were types and shadows talking about Christ who is better, who is the fulfillment of those things. And so here's what he says. Hebrews 10, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more conscience, that's the word conscience, of sins. And so the writer there is saying when someone comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and puts his or her faith in him, they have this new conscience. It's been relieved. It's been cleared. Why? Because Jesus Christ, as 1 John 1 says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses away all of our sins. And so when you sin, beloved, rest in that. That Jesus Christ has cleansed you from all your sin. 1 John 1, 7. And if you're here this morning and perhaps you haven't come to Christ or you know someone who has not yet come to Christ and you know their conscience is bothering them, escapism will not clear the conscience. Sex will not clear the conscience. Uh, music will not clear the conscience. Drugs will not clear the conscience. Only the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse and clear a man's, a woman's conscience before God. And we have this gift, this internal moral compass given to us by God. And so in context, what does Paul mean when he says, but also for conscience sake? Where is the conscience? Ladies, do you keep it in your purse? Men, do you keep it in your pocket? It's inside of you. It's part of your being. It's inside, not external, not outside. And so what Paul is saying is that we are also to obey for conscience sake. That is, we obey from the heart. And what we do, we do before the very presence of God. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments. And God says, you shall have no other gods before me, before my face. We talk about quorum Deo, before the presence or face of God. That's how we are to live. And so we obey the civil magistrate not merely, not only because we might incur God's wrath one day, not only because we might get in trouble by them, but we do it because God requires it of us. We want to please God. We want to love Jesus and obey His commands, right? Children, it's not unlike... Or I should say it is like obeying your parents. Um, going back to the cookie jar. They might say, hey, you stay out of there. Wait till after your dinner. You have to have my permission first. Okay, so you know that if you, if you get that cookie without asking um, and you're caught, you're going to be in trouble. So you don't do it because you might get caught. And if you get caught, you might get in trouble. That's not the best reason. It's a reason, but it's not the best reason. But if you say to yourself, well, God tells me 
to honor my father and my mother, to obey my parents and the Lord, for this is right. He will bless me. And you say, okay, Lord, I'm not going to eat that cookie. Mommy and Daddy have said not to eat it, and so I want to please you, so I'm not going to eat it. That's from the heart. That's according to conscience' sake. And so whether it's mother and father or employer, employee, in fact, let me just read to you from Colossians chapter 3 because it's spelled out right there. In Colossians 3 chapter 3, verse 22, he says, bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with thy service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. And so there again is that authority. We have to take that into context with the rest of Scripture. If the bondservant were to tell the servant uh, to sin against God, he has the right and should refuse to do that. But if he is told to do something, he should do it. Paul says, not for eye service, not merely to please that man, but to do it unto the Lord. You obey as unto the Lord, like the Lord is giving you that command to cook your dinner or do whatever he would have done. And so if you're an employee, that's what you do. You obey your employer as unto the Lord. You do it for conscience sake. And Paul is telling us here that when we obey the speed limit for some of us, as hard as that is, if and when we do it, we do it unto the Lord. I can remember as a new Christian obeying my mother and being happy about it, being that blessed man of Psalm 1 who seeks to do the law of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus saved me and I wanted to obey Jesus. I wanted to glorify him and please him. So I was happy to obey my parents in the Lord. That's what Paul is talking about here. That is a godly attitude towards the state. Because God, he has said, has ordained the state. He's ordained the state for our good. You see, and by the way, when it comes to authority, this is why there is a problem with someone who is never willing to subject himself to lawful authority. Why? It's because they will not subject themselves to God. There was a problem with that person. And so then we see the three reasons for our submission to the civil authorities. Again, it's not a blank check of authority. And uh, Paul lists the reasons in our text as we have seen last week and just now. I want to conclude this morning by talking about a few things. The, um, I want us now to consider the purpose and thus the limitations of civil government. We've got it surrounded. We've touched on it a few times, but I want us to see it plainly. I want us to see the purpose of civil government, and I want us to see the limitations of civil government. Something very, very important for each and every Christian, indeed every man, to see. And so Paul here lays out the purpose of civil government for us. We've already seen this, but in Romans 13, the purpose of civil government is to bring fear upon those who do evil, verse 3, 
It is to protect those who do good, verse 3 and verse 4. And it is to execute wrath, that is to avenge, to punish, to bring justice to those who do evil, verses 3 through 5. They do not bear the sword in vain. Elsewhere, the scripture teaches this in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14. Peter says there, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, every ordinance of man, for the Lord's sake, clear conscience, whether to the king as supreme or governors, as those to who as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Isn't that Romans 13 right there? We're to submit to the authorities as to those who are sent by God, him, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, Therefore I exhort... First of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks may be made for all men. This is what we're to do in the church of Jesus Christ. These are some of the people to whom we are to pray for. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Are you praying for those in authority over you, locally and federally? We are to do that so that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. The goal of the magistrate is to bring social order to prevent anarchy in a society so that the church of Jesus Christ might continue and multiply and continue to do the work of the church. And so then, what I've presented to you and what the Bible, I believe, presents to us is what ought to be. There's a difference, in, there's a difference isn't there, between what is and what should or ought to be. With every authority, whether it's a civil authority, a mother, a father, a pastor, a teacher, there can be wicked mothers and fathers, even pastors and teachers. And so as we think about this, we also see here the limitations of civil government. We can at least deduce uh, the limitations of civil government by noting the purpose and the function of civil government, right? Here's what they are to do. That's all we're told they are to do. And therefore, that's all they are to do. That's what we should conclude. Now, in our land, uh, James Boyce, uh, who's gone to be with the Lord, the old Presbyterian uh, pastor, and commentator talks about the malleable law in our land, which has come through the Supreme Court. There's something called the incorporation doctrine. 
And basically, that is a mechanism by which the Supreme Court has made law based on its judgments, and they're not supposed to do that. But that began back in 1907, at least it was articulated back then by one of the justices, Charles Evans Hughes, who said the Constitution is what the judges say it is. That's relativism. Our founding principle of law in this land, I'm telling you this because parents, you need to know this. You need to teach your children this. They need to know the truth. The founding principle of law in our land, which said that the law is supreme, not the government, initially came to our country through the influences of Samuel Rutherford in Scotland. Just after him, William Blackstone in England, and in our own country, John Witherspoon, who saw that it would get into our Constitution. Now, 1934, you say that's a long time ago. Well, sure it was. One of the founding members of the OPC, J. Gresham Machen, was writing an essay. He wrote an essay and he delivered it. And it was about the need for Christian schools in our country back then because he was fighting against this thing called the Department of Education. And he asked the question, he says, what do we find in present-day America? He said this, I think the really significant thing that we find is that America has turned away from God in the political and social discussions of the day. God's law has ceased to be regarded as a factor that deserves to be reckoned with at all. So what is my point? When we look at this text, Paul says the purpose of civil government is to punish those who do evil, to reward or praise or protect those who do good. Who determines good from evil? God and God alone. And he's told us that in his moral law. He's told us that in his word. And so government is limited then. They they are to make and enforce laws, but they are to be based on God's truth found in his word. And since the civil authorities are the ministers or servants of God, it would make sense, wouldn't it, that they are to serve in a way that pleases him. And so they too are accountable to God for good and evil. The second psalm talks about that. And as the church, we have that prophetic voice to speak out in our land, in our society, to be salt and light. You can speak with your voice, the vote. Okay, I'm not going to go into this tirade about who you should vote for and all that. But I personally am convicted and think that we should vote in a way that represents God's word. And of course, respecting its function, we see its limitation. Again, they are to protect the good, to punish the evil. They aren't to give handouts and to give us education and to do all of the things that the beast has done in our day and time. The government may and at times should wage just war, a war of defense. Last time we talked about the, le- the lesser magistrate, I would encourage you to go and look at that. 
If you're interested to know, well, was our country founded on biblical principles or is it merely rebellion and all of that? Some would say it was just because they served a local government to resist, to defend themselves from a larger government. And therefore, they were able to apply Romans 13, to be subject to their government. That's for your information. So now I just want to conclude by saying this, or answering this question. Was it Paul's, the Apostle Paul's practice, Paul who wrote Romans 13 under the inspiration of the Spirit, was it his practice to acquiesce to every demand of his civil government without question? The answer is no. If you want to follow along, I'm going to turn to the book of Acts now, chapter 16. I'll just show you some of these things quickly. You, you will know that the Apostle Paul, being faithful to Christ, went to different cities and different regions, preached the gospel. All of these regions were under Roman rule, and Paul was born a Roman citizen. Of course, he represented as an ambassador, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the sake of the kingdom of Christ, not Rome. And so he was threatened, he was told he would be thrown in prison, he was commanded to to shut up and not preach in the name of Christ and all of this. And so in Acts chapter 16, uh, during one of his trials, he appeals boldly to his right or rights as a Roman citizen, condemning the actions of the civil magistrate. In Romans 16 and verse 37, Paul giving testimony says this, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. This is the same guy who wrote Romans 13. If you look as well at Acts chapter 22, Paul appeals to his rights there in verses 25 through 29. They raise their voices. They say, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. That's verse 22. Verse 25, as they bound him, Paul, with thongs. Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And the centurion heard that, and he told the commander, he says, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander says, Are you a Roman? Paul says, Yes. And then the commander in verse 28 says to Paul, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. He bought his Roman citizenship. And Paul said to him, but I was born a citizen. He had greater privileges as a Roman citizen born into that government. And so in verse 29, they became afraid, we are told. He was also afraid after he found out that he, Paul, was a Roman and because he had bound him. Ultimately, this works in Paul's favor and in the favor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 26 of Acts, in verse 31, he makes his case again. And uh, because it was politically expedient, 
to keep them alive, but in chains, that, that's what they did. Chapter 26, verse 31, it says, And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man has done nothing deserving death or chains. Of course, they would put him in chains because that's what they had to do to keep their jobs, as it were. And so in chapter 28, we find in verse 16 that Paul arrives in Rome. Now, do you remember way back in Romans chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says, I want to come to you, Christians, church, who are in Rome. Paul is now in Rome, perhaps not in the way that he thought he would be, free, able to go where he wished, but bound in chains. God has his ways, doesn't he? His providences. So Paul arrives in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's leading others to Christ elsewhere. I think it's Philippians. He says that just about the whole praetorium guard came to faith in Jesus Christ. Look at the end of Acts chapter 28, verse 30. Luke tells us, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, he's under house arrest, and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Now, yes, God is sovereign. God is providential. But in his providence, God in part used the means of Paul, the apostle, pleading his case as a Roman citizen. And brothers and sisters, I think that's important for the church of Jesus Christ to remember always, but especially in our day to remember as well. And so as we look at Romans 13, beloved, make sure that you obey the civil authorities that you obey their lawful commands, and that you do so with a clear conscience before God. Amen. Let us pray.